Hey everybody, I'm Adam Levenberg. Welcome to the official screenwriting podcast. This week I'll talk about Behind the Candelabra and I'll talk a little bit about character webs according to John Truby. The interesting thing is that both of these subjects don't actually overlap perfectly. And yet I think that, you know, like so many other elements of screenwriting, it's catch as catch can. You have to look at things, evaluate things. And I talked about this a little bit last week. It's really all of this stuff. I, I hope that you're not stopping here in terms of the education. When I bring up a subject like this, and especially if it's new to you, your job is to go out and learn more and evaluate other films. This is not sort of the, hey, let me take the notes and this is all I need to know, because if that's where you're stopping, you're never going to get far enough in order to deliver an awesome screenplay. Okay. Um, this week I finished watching Arrested Development Season 4. I don't want to spend too much time talking about it because I don't have all that much to say. They completely blew up the format of their previous three seasons in order to create Season 4 because they couldn't get the entire cast back together. And what they did was they said, well, we'll do sort of a Rashomon approach where we'll show the same events from different perspectives, tracking the same timeline, and the and and then focus each episode on individual characters um that is not how seasons one through three work seasons one through three followed jason bateman who played michael um as as he had specific goals in order to keep himself and his family out of trouble and would constantly juggle the demands and off-kilter agendas of his wacky family members here, you know, Jason Bateman is the star of, I think, three or four of the episodes. I mean, it really is uh, a completely different approach. And the, th the other thing that really changes, the big game changer here, is that most Arrested Development episodes run between 21 and 24 minutes long. That's what you have to do in order to have a 30-minute network show with commercials. And here, they weren't forced to edit anything. There, there was no editing process there was no whittling down and the result is episodes that run as long as i think 37 minutes so instead of watching sort of this wacky careening you know plot where everything's happening bam 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 and you know it's sort of cut to within an inch of its life so that we can follow what's going on and if there's some great jokes that occur in between or at the end of the scene as a punch um then that's great but you know ultimately they had to serve the plot and here, there's, there's sort of that lack of energy and momentum because you have episodes that are running 10, 15, you know, minutes longer, and that energy just dissipates. Um, maybe you could make the argument that it wouldn't be there anyway because they've completely changed the format, but I think that, you know, if I had to pick one thing that, you, you know, I, I really sort of objected to, it's the lack of the editing process at work because they can do whatever they want. And I think that was the problem, you know, going way back to uh, Sex in the City 2, where it was a film that they could not put in front of test audiences because it would give away, you know, with the Internet, you'd give away all of the new plot twists and all of the, you know, character developments and so forth. But the, the other part of it was that it was the sequel to a very successful film. It was the exact same team that had delivered the successful film. So they were sort of able to do whatever they wanted, and they delivered a two-and-a-half-hour movie that might have been a lot more watchable at an hour and 45 minutes. All right, moving on. Cloud Atlas is out on DVD this week. Um, it might have been out a couple weeks ago. 
if you haven't seen this film, this is the latest film by the Wachowskis and Tom Twiker. Tom did a great film called Run, Lola, Run, which if you haven't seen that, get it on your Netflix queue. It's a fucking awesome film. Um, and Cloud Atlas is, I think it's like six different stories overlapping on top of each other, and you have different directors handling different storylines. But the overall approach is unlike any film you've ever seen. It is completely original and it you know it's a wildly successful adaptation of what's considered to be an unadaptable book if you haven't seen this film you're not trying hard enough this was probably the best and certainly you know i could say it's one of the best films of last year it's certainly one of the most ambitious films to have ever been financed at over a hundred million dollars in fact i I'm, i feel comfortable saying it is the most ambitious film to have ever been financed at over a hundred million dollars, you have Tom Hanks playing multiple roles, and you know if if it it takes a little bit of adjustment because it's like, hey, here's Tom Hanks and he's playing, you know, it, it takes a couple of minutes, but then you eventually sort of settle into it because he's one of the world's greatest actors. Um, and if you know you want to sort of bone up on your Wachowski uh, film history. Some other good films to recommend, Bound, which is a contained thriller, the first film that they directed, a film good enough to get them, you know, The Matrix, to show that they were just sort of virtuosos behind the camera, as well as writers, which is what they started out as. Um, and if you want to check out one of those films, Assassins, directed by Richard Donner, written by the Wachowskis, about two competing assassins, the old veteran played by Sylvester Stallone and the young hotshot played by Antonio Banderas, with, I believe, Julianne Moore as the woman between them. Um, so that is, uh, the, you have some solid recommendations there, but Cloud Atlas is the number one film to see there because it's fucking awesome. I'm going to move on to Behind the Candelabra. This, you know, they tried to make, and when I say tried to make, there were multiple Liberace films in development at studios for many years. I'm not going to get into the history of it. The New York Times, I believe, did a great article on that. Um, and I've, I, I think I'd read one or two of those versions. Uh, I think I read one that Nicolas Cage was attached to at some point. There was even a version that was written by the guys who did all of those, you know, those... Um, airplane-like parody films. I think they did Vampire Suck, but they did uh, the, all the movies with the word movie after them. Um, I'm, I'm blanking on them because they're pretty forgettable and they kept doing them like every year. Uh, but, the, you know, those guys, again, the, the, the parody films I, were relatively unwatchable, but the work that they did in a Liberace script was, you know, pretty damn competent. Uh, but, you know, this wasn't a film that needed to be done at a studio and that would have had to have made $100 million before they saw a profit. There's no reason for that. HBO can make the movie. They can put it out there. It happens to be one of the most watched and definitely the most talked about HBO films uh, presentation that they've done in, they say, over a decade. I would say probably ever. Um, and that's due to the fact that they have Michael Douglas and Matt Damon both of whom are movie stars in their own right, starring in this film with a lot of really racy content um, and getting into, you know, a, some subject matter that hasn't ever been tackled 
in you know major motion pictures and i guess you know i'm here going to conflate you know behind the candelabra with the major motion picture because the only real difference behind the fact that it's on hbo versus in a theater is that hbo actually gives them more money to do it than they would have if they had done it in the studio system so I'll talk, I, you know, I have a couple of things to talk about in this film. I actually wasn't planning on talking about it this week, and when I went back to look at it to put this podcast together, HBO Go wasn't working with me. So um, this is all based on my first viewing of the film. All right. Um, the first of all, I want to talk about the makeup work in this film, which makeup work is really difficult and. When I say it's really difficult, what I mean is that it's a total crapshoot whether or not it works. You know that I, I actually love the film Color of Night with Bruce Willis, which is a film that entirely depends on makeup work, and it doesn't quite function as you know it needs to, because makeup work is the mixture of acting, directing, and technical prowess on behalf of the makeup department, and all of those, and, and lighting, and cinematography. I mean, all these things really have to sort of come together in order to mask a, an actor who looks one way and to have them presented in a physically different light when it comes to their face because it's really easy to make somebody's hands look old or for you know to to have their posture look different but in order to have somebody's face and be able to act under that makeup and have the camera right up in there and to be able to buy what you're looking at is is something that you know is rarely done well that's one of the reasons that i suggest that you know you don't in a screenplay cut to like 50 years later or 30 years later and you have the character as an old person because it's sticking the director with the choice do i recast the role in which case i find it's really hard to get emotionally worked up you know the the end of saving private ryan i think is an example of it where it's like you have this old guy who's supposedly matt damon but it's like we went on this journey with Matt Damon for a lot of, or for some of Saving Private Ryan, and then you recast the role and he has this breakdown. But to me, there's sort of this emotional divorce that takes place because it's not the same guy. It's some random actor that I don't know who it was. And, you know, you kind of, at least for me, I I have a difficulty... Um, you know, sort of identifying with it. Uh, interestingly, there's a movie called A League of Their Own that did a really interesting thing where they cast actors who looked like the younger actors, but then they used the voice for Gina Davis, who's the star of the film. So they used her voice. And the lookalike is so good that you're almost wondering, is that Gina Davis? And then by adding her voice underneath, it sort of created this composite that was good enough. Um, but in any case, uh, in this, you know, Behind the Candelabra is the story of Liberace and Scott Thorson, uh, who were uh, a couple and you know Liberace was a huge Las Vegas entertainer and a personality who you know went on a lot of talk shows and stuff and the the makeup work here um, is pretty impressive because one of the things that Liberace did through the course of his relationship with Scott is basically force him to get plastic surgery to look like a younger version of himself. So here you have Matt Damon, whose face is okay, um, getting th you know a chin implant and and a huge you know nose implant basically to get a nose that looks like Liberace, which is you know a far from perfect nose, um, and it still kind of works. I don't know how much of it was the digital stuff 
But again, it's really impressive. And then there's some other actors running around in this film that you actually don't recognize. Dan Aykroyd. It, it took me a really long time to realize, holy shit, that's Dan Aykroyd. Long after the character had been introduced as Liberace's manager. And Debbie Reynolds as Liberace's mother is completely unidentifiable. And that's a, you know an interesting thing to have an actress in a film who completely disappears. Um, and, you know, part of the great thing is that because the credits come at the end, you don't necessarily know. I'm talking about it here. Uh, my guess is that you've already seen it, you're going to see it, or you don't really care one way or another. So I'm not giving away anything huge, uh, unlike some movies that require, you know, uh, makeup in order to disguise actors. Um, so the, the thing here that first I'll talk about is that the biggest thing about this relationship, you know, you have a an established icon star and we're going to follow the this particular relationship. It's not the Liberace story. It's not his rise to fame. It's not his downfall. It is Liberace's life through the lens of this particular relationship, which is shown to be the primary romantic relationship in his life. But the most important thing that this film understands, and this was written by Richard Legravenez, who wrote one of my favorite comedies ever, The Ref. If you haven't seen The Ref, please get it. It's awesome. I know that it's streaming on YouTube. I talked about The Mirror Has Two Faces a couple weeks ago, um, but the, the Ref is really, you know, one of the, the smartest, sharpest comedies you'll ever see. So in any case, he understands that in order to make this work in the eyes of the audience and not just show Matt Damon's character as this boy toy, we need to give that character value. We need to show that he can do something. And the film opens with him working on a film set. He's working with animals. We show that he has a skill and he has a job. And he has dreams of something bigger. He wants to be a veterinarian. That's his plan. Um, and the reason it's important to depict all this stuff is because it all goes away because the way that he connects with Liberace, and this is really interesting also, because we need to show how do they connect in a way that's not just Liberace looking at him in a way with sort of lust. We have to give him value, and the way that we give him value is that Liberace has this dog. Once Scott goes to his home, invited by a friend, uh, Liberace has this dog that I think was named Baby or something like that, this old poodle, with cataracts, and Liberace says, oh, we can't see, and Scott says to him, oh, I can get you some eye drops, you know, maybe maybe the dog can be helped, um, and there he's proving his value. He's doing something for Liberace that Liberace couldn't do or hadn't done on his own, which is, you know, help fix his beloved dog, um, and that it leads to the next element in the relationship, which is Liberace gives him his private number. Matt Damon calls up. And by the way, I'm going to keep probably going back and forth between the, the character names and the actor names. Bear with me. Uh, Matt Damon calls him up and says, hey, uh, I have that medication for you. Can you give me the address and I'll send it off and you'll have it later this week? And Liberace says, oh, no, 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 no. This is really important to me. I insist that you fly here tonight at my expense and blah, blah, blah. And of course, you know, immediately they're in a relationship. Liberace offers him a job and Matt Damon slash Scott Thorson leaves his life behind in Los Angeles in order to in order to go into a work slash romantic relationship with Liberace. And it's interesting because it starts off and he says, 
I'm going into this with my eyes open because his foster parents have some real reservations about this. You know, Liberace is a really old or much older than he is. Um, in real life, the age difference was quite quite large, um, as it is in this movie, but it was a little bit younger. Scott Thorson, I believe, was 17, according to most of the articles, and they, they upped his age because that was another strategy that the, that the script and the filmmakers used in order to not in order to allow audiences to buy into this a little bit and buy into this relationship, which did develop and, and lasted quite a period of time, but it would be really hard to watch a, a character seducing a 17-year-old um, and, and not sort of recoil from that or raise some objections. So in order to tell this story, they decided we got to make him older. Um, but... Um, he says to his uh, foster mother, I'm going into this with my eyes open. And that's really important because otherwise we just think of him as kind of a dunce or somebody who, you know, is trying to get something out of this other than what it is, which is an authentic relationship. And I, I think that's one of the most important lines in the movie. Um so, you know, this film is a relationship film. It's a love story, a dark love story, one that doesn't work out well. Um, but it gives a lot of problems in this relationship. And I'm going to call them out here. I'm not going to give examples for all these because I don't want to ruin the movie and talk about every scene. But if you haven't seen it yet, you can look for these elements because it hits on every one of these elements uh, at least three times, at least three different moments uh, each one of these is touched upon because that's all that's going on in this movie. Um, you, you know, we're dealing with the problems in the relationship. And there, I'm going to talk a little bit about the character web in a minute, but there are other issues in the relationship. And this is just off the top of my head. Again, if I had watched it a second time, I might have been able to pick out some more stuff. The first thing, of course, is inequality, which is that... Scott Thorson is moving into Liberace's life. Liberace has a show uh, at the casino. He has a home. He has multiple homes, actually. And he's being, Scott is given a job to be part of Liberace's life, essentially, to be his right-hand man. And he ends up getting a job in the show itself where he drives the car onto the stage that Liberace emerges from. Um, so, you know, we have this massive inequality that we start with and that continues throughout the relationship. And we have multiple scenes where they try to negotiate that, where Liberace says, I don't want you to feel like you're secondary in this relationship. And I want to give you a house and I want to give you all these things so that you know that you're secure, whatever happens in terms of this relationship. Um, so we'll touch on the inequality thing multiple times. And of course, during the downfall part of the relationship, that kicks into high gear. Um, the second element is that Liberace lived in a totally closed off world. He created a palace for himself, but he never left it. And it was a very luxurious but stifling existence to Scott because Scott, they didn't interact with anybody else. It was the, the staff and the people in Liberace's professional life. And that's all there was. He was stuck there. And, you know, they do the show, they come home. That's it. And it, it comes up multiple times where Scott gets incredibly frustrated and says, look, I, I need more than this. I need to interact with people. I need to go out. 
And here we have the next element in the relationship, which is Lee or Liberace's behavior. Whenever he's feeling criticized, he puts a wall up and says, what more can I give you? How much more generous can I be? And I think it's, it's that line, what more can I give you, that comes up multiple times. Um, because, you know, in this case, he's all he can think about is what can I buy for you? But he's not really interested in finding out how he can be a better partner. Um, and that actually comes up with his mother also, which I'll, I'll talk about in a bit. Um, then there is the plastic surgery element where he forces Scott to have plastic surgery to look like him. Uh, and this is something that might have occurred with other guys as well, where that was sort of his M.O. Um, and they certainly get into the the film does touch upon the progression or the cycle of relationships that Liberace engaged in. I'll talk about that in a minute more with the characters. But here that's a huge element because we have a great plastic surgeon played by Rob Lowe who has some great makeup work done himself. And uh, this becomes a huge element in the story where uh, Liberace is basically requiring Matt Damon to become a younger version of himself. And that's dark and fucked up and certainly very interesting. Uh, the film also deals with sexuality in a really, really frank way, in a way that's probably never been done before. You know, if this had been done by a major studio 10 years ago, the question would be, is there a kiss between these characters? We certainly see a lot more going on. But the element of the fact that Liberace is far more adventurous and open is something that comes up at multiple points in the in the script and is something that is definitely a relationship problem between the two of them because well you'll see for yourself how how it plays out and what are the what are the points that this you know comes up at but it's definitely one of the elements and and you know kudos to the film for at least presenting this and presenting it in such an incredibly frank and graphic light because nobody's ever done that before the next problem in the relationship scott's drug use he does not realize when he goes to the rob lowe character um the plastic surgeon the the plastic surgeon says i'm going to put you on the california diet and gives him you know pills which i, I would presume are amphetamines and he, Matt Damon keeps saying, oh, I'm on the California diet. And he doesn't realize that it's a joke, that the idea of the California diet taking some pills uh, is, is something that is not a medical, it's not like saying I'm going on the Atkins diet. Um, so, you know, Scott's drug use becomes a huge, huge stumbling block and, and ultimately the destruction of the relationship um, but, you know, it's also the result of a lot of these other factors that are that are already in play and and his own sort of traumatic uh, past that we learn about. And the last thing is uh, Liberace's work ethic, which was insane. The guy worked one or two shows a day all week and then he'd do two, two or three shows on Sunday. Um, he never stopped working. And we see that that's something that's constantly trying to be negotiated between the two of them because even Liberace understands that he's working himself to death. He's just, you know, going nonstop and they certainly have everything that they need. So, you know, it wouldn't kill them to take a vacation. And we see how that plays into their relationship. I'm going to talk real quickly about the character web here. Um, 
in the beginning, we see when, when Matt Damon comes to the sh Liberace show, we see that Liberace is joined on stage by a younger version of Liberace. Uh, the character is Billy Leatherwood, played by Cheyenne Jackson, who you might remember from 30 Rock. Um, and he looks like a younger version of Liberace, and he plays the piano. He's part of the show. And he's also, we see in Liberace's dressing room that he's a drunk, he's petulant, and he be, he basically is what um, Scott Thorson will later become because he's been living in, in a relationship with Liberace. Liberace's turned him into a mini-me, and now he's looking elsewhere, namely at Scott Thorson for romantic interest, and we, we just see sort of the fury and the, the alcoholism or drug use going on with this character. Um, and we even get Liberace having a line about that. Oh, this guy used to be, he used to be really amazing and he was such a bright presence and now look at him. And, you know, there's this darkness around the character. Um, and that's, that's what our hero will become. Um, and we also get the, the warning from, so, so we have this character that's introduced in the beginning of what the Matt Damon character will become. And then at the, once Matt Damon's character has become that, we introduce Carrie, a young blonde who's a singer or a dancer in the opening act for Liberace. And, of course, that's the what Matt Damon was at the beginning of the story. The young, idealistic, you know, looking up to Liberace as this god. And we have, you know, the Scott Thorson character definitely in the throes of drug addiction. But, um behaving exactly like we saw Billy Leatherwood behaving at the beginning of this film. So, you know, here we have we have both elements in play. We also then in the supporting character web have two characters who present opposition to Scott Thorson, one of whom is the houseboy, um, which is basically Liberace's manservant, the person who comes in and fluffs the pillows up before bedtime and brings you a soda and all that stuff. And the houseboy says to Scott Thorson at one point, I, you know, you think that you're special. You're not. I've seen this cycle happen a million times before, and it's going to happen a million times after. And you know what? I've, I've stuck around. I've managed to be here. I'm here. You're not going to be at some point. And Scott Thorson successfully has that guy fired. And that, that's important because it shows the progression of the relationship with Liberace that, no, this relationship might not be exactly like every other relationship that he's been in, that the cycle is not continuing because Scott Thorson is, you know, impacting his life and Liberace is making changes at Scott's request. But here's the flip side of the houseboy, which is the manager played by Dan Aykroyd. The manager basically is just working Liberace nonstop. And Liberace has this weird submissive kind of relationship with the manager where he thinks the manager is working really hard for him. And the manager just keeps pushing more showtimes, more showtimes, you know, no, you can't go on that vacation. And at one point, you know, there's this discussion where the manager calls Liberace and says, hey, we have this offer to work, you know, the holidays and you make double the money during the holidays that you would at any other time. Liberace says no. And Scott's sitting there saying, no, no, no. Put me on the phone with him. And they puts him on the phone and the manager says, hey, get out of my fucking business. Um, and that's not a relationship that Scott wins at. The manager is ultimately there at the end and Scott is not. Um, 
Then we have Liberace's mother, played by Debbie Reynolds. And, you know, here is this, I think she's German. Here's this German woman who is in the middle of Las Vegas in the early 1980s. She is completely alone. And all she has is her son. And there's, you know, probably a little bit too close of a relationship between mother and son there, at least in her mind. And all she wants is more time with her son. So it's the opposite of the problem that Scott has, which is that he's with Liberace all the time and needs like some time away and some time away from the house. And in the case with Liberace's mother, she just wants more time with him. And his response to her is the, the response that we'll hear multiple times. What more can I give you? I've given you, you know, places to live. You're in the best nursing facility possible. You have any, anything you could ever want. Um, but really all she wants is more time with her son. It's the opposite of the problem that Scott has with her. Um, so I'm, I'm not going to get too much into the ending, but there's a fun mind screen that occurs and it solves a problem, which is that there's an element of Liberace's performance that people remember him for that occurred after the events of this story. How do you insert it into this movie? The film comes up with a really interesting mind screen episode that occurs during Liberace's funeral and satisfies a lot of different uh, necessities of the story to wrap up in a satisfying way while touching on the biographical element that people want to see because that's one of the elements that's remembered about Liberace as a show person and one of the things that he did. Um, they figure out a way to work that in. So real quickly, I'll talk about character web in terms of John Truby because... I think that, um, you know, there's different ways of looking at all this stuff. I just talked about how there were different sides of the coin with, you know, some of these characters along the way, some of which uh, are the opposite and some of which are, are shown in terms of the hero's goal. Um, and I think that that's important because, you know, every character, according to John Truby, I'm quoting here, every character must serve the purpose of the story, which is found in the story's designing principle, um, but the designing principle is all about the hero's goal and the hero's journey. So every character is essentially a reflection or an inverse or, a, you know, the mirror of our hero. And, of course, our hero is the most important character because this is the person with the central problem who drives the action and attempts to solve the problem. Um, and uh, we have the opponent. The opponent is the character who most wants to keep the hero from achieving his desire. Um, and that opponent does not have to be a, merely a block. He doesn't have to be, hey, I want to stop you. Sometimes the opponent just wants the same thing. The interesting thing about discussing these things in terms of this movie is that, of course, there is no villain because there, it's not that type of movie. It's a love story. And in love stories, including romantic comedies, the, the hero and the love interest are the love interest is often the opponent it's both and that's sort of the, the one of the big differences in the story form um, and it, that does fit because remember that the opponent should want the same thing as the hero and that means the hero and the opponent must come into direct conflict throughout the story um, I don't know actually you know i can think of plenty of movies where there's a villain with you know especially in cop movies that's sort of where you get the opposite thing where you get you know the villain doesn't necessarily want what the cop wants um but you know very often in competition stories that's what competition stories are all about hey we both want the same thing um and that's the most important relationship in the story 
in working out the struggle between these characters, the larger issues and themes of the story unfold. Of course, I'm quoting here from John Truby's Anatomy of Story. We also often give the character an ally. The ally is the hero's helper. The ally serves as a sounding board, allowing the audience to hear the values and feelings of the character. Um, and the interesting thing about uh, this movie is that it really... It's. I, I don't know that there is an ally other than maybe his foster parents. You know what? That's that's what it is. It's his foster mother. It's his foster mother who talks to him and, you know, wants to make sure that this relationship is on the up and up. And it's, you know, it shows how sort of isolated the character is that that only exists at the beginning of the story for him. Um, I think she checks in with him one time throughout the movie. Uh, but it, it shows how isolated the character is that he really doesn't have much of an ally in Liberace's world. Then we have the fake ally opponent. The fake ally opponent is a character who appears to have the heroes be the hero's friend, but is actually an opponent. And that's an interesting character. I would say here the Rob Lowe character is the fake ally opponent because he's a plastic surgeon who's prescribing this, uh, this young guy. A, he's doing plastic surgery that the guy doesn't want. Um, or really isn't invested in. He sort of does it just to go along with it. But B, he's basically his drug dealer. And, you know, and, and the plastic surgeon knows that Liberace does not want Scott seeing him anymore to get these drugs. Because Scott basically has to start paying for the drugs with rings and things like that because he doesn't have the cash in order to pay for all these drugs. So I would say that in this film, uh, the Rob Lowe character is that fake ally opponent. Um... Then we have the fake opponent ally, who appears to be fighting the hero, but is actually their friend, actually has their best interest at heart. Um, and in, you know, the, the Truby Anatomy of Storybook, he points out that's what Hannibal Lecter is in The Silence of the Lambs, because the hero is Clarice. The main opponent is actually Buffalo Bill, the serial killer, and Hannibal Lecter is the fake opponent ally. He's somebody who appears to be in opposition to the hero, but really is helping her along. Um, and then we have a subplot character. There's none of those in this movie because a subplot character has a very precise function, which is it involves the comparative method. It is, the subplot is used to contrast how the hero and second character deal with the same problem in slightly different ways. We don't have that going on in the Liberace movie. Um, or in the Silence of the Lambs. It doesn't occur. Um, so that's basically the the levels of character that, or the character web that there is, according to John Truby. We have the hero. We have the main opponent. We often have secondary opponents. Um, because, you know, in the Liberace movie, the main opponent would be Liberace. Um, he's the not only the love interest, he's the main opponent. But then we have the secondary opponent, the manager. And we have... a third opponent which is the houseboy um and you might even say we have a fourth one which would be billy leatherwood who immediately goes away once once uh scott thorson ends up in a relationship with liberace uh we have the fake ally opponent in this case that would be the plastic surgeon um the ally which is the stepmother who has the only has scott's best interest at heart and then later we'll give him a lawyer oh you know the fake opponent uh ally um, hang on, I was thinking real quickly. The fake ally opponent might also be the lawyer, because Scott's lawyer, um, you know, sort of pushes him to settle in a way that, you know, 
might feel a little bit unfair uh, towards Scott. Um, so you, you might say that the same thing occurs there, again, with the fake ally opponent. Um, and then uh, the ally, of course, the stepmother, and then the fake opponent ally uh, he doesn't have in this movie. Although, in a way, it might be the mother. You could say that, that it sort of fall, the mom sort of falls into that category because she is sort of pushing Liberace in the same way that, uh, that he is, which is that, or maybe that's the subplot character. You know, because Liberace's mother really does not factor into the relationship at all. She's not an opponent to the relationship. I mean, for all we know, that she doesn't even know the relationship is happening. You know, um, I think the other books got, or the other screenplays got into this a little bit where, you know, he had his mother around, but I'm not sure that she knew or that it was ever stated, you know, what was going on there with uh, these young guys who were working as his, quote, assistants. So... Here, maybe it's she's the subplot character. She is a, a person who is dealing with the same problem in a slightly different way, which is that, you know, the, the way that her son treats her, it's that it's all about what he can write a check for not giving his time. And that's the opposite of the problem that our hero is dealing with, which is that he has everything he needs, but he could use a little bit less time with this guy and less time in, you know, his uh, partner's world. So anyway, uh, that's what I have for you this week. Stay tuned for next week. Um, my book, The Starter Screenplay, available at thestarterscreenplay.com, autographed personally to you to, with free shipping. And uh, you can download it for Kindle and check out directorsplayhouse.com for listings of my screenwriting class. All right, and any questions, feel free to email me. You can email me at thestarterscreenplay.com. Have a good week.